Welcome to The Good Enough Mother. My name is Sophie. I am a mother and a motherhood studies sociologist. I believe that we need broad social and cultural change in our societies in order to adequately support the mother to feel empowered, held, revered and respected in our society and culture. I have conversations here with experts and change makers who want to expand the conversation that we're having about motherhood. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to another episode of the Good Enough Mother podcast. I am speaking with Emily Adler Mosqueda in this episode. Emily has recently released her book, Unexpected, a Postpartum Memoir, and our conversation centers on the predominant themes that come out of her book, where she explores her journey from becoming a mother of one to becoming a mother of two. Her book is described as a raw account of a second-time mother who finds herself struggling for the first time with postpartum depression, anxiety, and motherhood itself. And it is in this transitional period of moving to being a mother of two children that Emily finds herself unable to ignore, as she describes, the impossible tempo of motherhood. At eight months postpartum, Emily finds motherhood to be punctuated with unexpected sensations of irritability, feelings of rage, and they're all lathered, as she describes, in immobilizing guilt and shame. And we talk about these experiences a little bit more in depth in this conversation. But of course, I would really encourage you to find a copy of Emily's book to purchase if you resonate with the conversation we have here and some of the themes that come up. Part of what we talk about is not only Emily's experience in journey from one to two children, but the way that she has made sense of and explored and unpacked her experience of what it means to be a mother in the context of completing the Motherhood Studies certification in 2021. She talks about the way that Motherhood Studies has supported and expanded her understandings of her own experience of motherhood and then also how this work is being integrated and has been integrated and it's a continual process of integration uh, within her career as well. So Emily is a bilingual and bicultural mama of two, and she's also a paediatric speech and language pathologist and is currently clinical assistant professor and supervisor of graduate speech language students. And so from this conversation, you'll hear about the ways that big life transitions can really usher in both disorientation, but then also this potential for immense growth and expansion and Emily's book and her work, and I hope this conversation for you can really encapsulate the grief, the love, the vulnerability and power, and the breaking down alongside the breaking through that can be part of our experience of motherhood. So enjoy this conversation, connect with Emily at her website, her social media, and buy a copy of her book, Unexpected, a Postpartum Memoir. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast, Emily. I'm so excited for this conversation and have had some really interesting conversations and themes that arise with you when we've connected recently. And so I'm really grateful that you are here sharing your time with me and sharing your book with the world. So welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I wondered if I can start off by first reading out a little bit about your book that is taken from the publisher's website. And I would love to hear your reactions and reflections as you listen to me read about your own work and words. So your book is called Unexpected, a Postpartum Memoir. And the book blurb says, repeat mothers are assumed to know what to expect during pregnancy, birth and the postpartum period. Unexpected, a postpartum memoir is the moving, raw account of a second-time mother who finds herself struggling for the first time with postpartum depression, anxiety, and motherhood itself. 
Only as a mother of two does Emily find herself unable to ignore the impossible tempo of motherhood. At eight months postpartum, Emily finds motherhood to be punctured with unexpected sensations of irritability and feelings of rage, all lathered in immobilizing guilt and shame. Readers witness the author's personal evolution through her internal review and deconstruction of self and her examination of maternal expectations. It's through this journey of examining and feeling that truly opens up the unexpected possibilities of understanding what it means to be content in motherhood. Beautiful. How does it feel hearing that? I'm really proud of myself. (laughs) I'm proud of the landscape internally that I've traversed that was very unfamiliar at the time and uncomfortable viscerally and socially. And I'm also in awe of the ability to be published amongst a canon of other amazing feminist authors at Demeter Press and kind of the journey that has that continued after this acute time of really disorientation and disorganization of myself and this beautiful new this beautiful new place that I find myself in relationship to the motherhood space as a professional but also personally and how there's more space to be there's more compassion there's more possibilities because I kind of went through this big evolution of self this big deconstruction of self so yeah it was really remarkable to hear you read it and thank you for that opportunity it hasn't been read out loud to me and I only just recently have the book to hold so it makes it all the more special to to hear it, particularly from you, who I learned so much and was that was so pivotal in my editing process to have the timing of having completing the motherhood studies course with you. That was another part of the journey to help me understand and give words to things that I hadn't had words for. So, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And as a speech and language pathologist, right, part of what you are so passionate about is language and words. But I want to take us back to, but in, in when the, I read out the blurb there, it's talking about this transition from one to two. And mm-hmm. I'd love you to speak, take yourself back to the place of your initial transition to motherhood and maybe paint a picture for us as listeners of what that looked like for you and felt like for you, and now perhaps with the lens of hindsight, looking back, knowing what you know now, what happened in that transition from a mother of one to becoming a mother of two? Okay, so becoming a mother of one, I felt it was really easy. felt made to do it. I felt like it was very intuitive. I felt like I was being the maternal female that I was born to be. And it was becoming pregnant with my second that that patient and always kind and, you know, the perfect mother in some ways was not that, uh, you know, it was started to kind of crack, started to have moments of now I see it as my humanity. I couldn't keep up the sustainability of that perfect front uh, was wearing <clears throat> at two and a half years of doing it and then being pregnant again. So even in that pregnancy, the second pregnancy, it was moments of irritability and just already shifting the relationship with my first child, shifting within my own relationship of I had really kept my my husband out of 
the mothering process. I had really been a lot doing a lot of gatekeeping as I learned from motherhood studies. And I was then I had set a precedent then as well, um, not only to my husband, but to other people in our in our family, in our social circles, that I was very competent. And if I was starting to need or feel like I needed help, I didn't feel like I could ask for it. And so then I just kind of started to try to work harder to be the self-sufficient person that I had become known to be. And I'd been very good at and had been able to keep up with that for one child. There was a honeymoon phase after the birth of my second daughter where we were, my husband and I were really putting into practice new things um, in the infant, that really like newborn infancy stage. My first daughter had been born 10 days late. And, or, you know, supposedly late at almost at 42 weeks, whereas her little sister was born right at pretty much right at 40 weeks. And we saw a real difference in 10 days of infant life that we had with our youngest that we didn't experience with our, with our oldest or with our first daughter. So that was unique and kind of unfamiliar, but it didn't, didn't phase me in the sense of, worrying me. I think just there was a lot of visceral memory, bodily memory of what it, what it was like to have an infant. And we, I think we leaned into that a little too much, or we overgeneralized that this stage would be, uh, that we kind of had this down. We, you know, my husband knew how to change a diaper. He knew how to dress an infant. I wasn't kind of concerned that he didn't know how to do that, or I didn't know how to do that. So that was helpful that we had that skill set. But then as it was, as the girls got older, as I went back to work, that's where it became really challenging to uh, keep up the, the positivity or to keep up the energy to engage with the girls as I had imagined I would do, which my only reference was when I had one child. So here I had a newborn and a three-year-old. Those are really different developmental stages. And even with my experience in pediatric speech-language pathology of working with three-year-olds, I worked with them when they were in, in their, you know, in the middle of the day, they're rested, they're fed, they're at preschool, they're happy. And it was only for 25 minute speech therapy sessions. It wasn't in the evening when they're tired, when they have been missing me all day, they don't want to share that. They don't want to share me with their little sister. So that was challenging to navigate that I hadn't anticipated. I had overgeneralized this kind of good three-year-old behavior that that was how they were all the time. And so that was, that was disappointing <laughs> when I had this newborn that really, really needed me in a whole different level. So I just had such competing needs that I, I was, I just over time got really overwhelmed and I had never been that overwhelmed in my life. So I didn't know how to manage and that just was really hard. Yeah. I want to read out a quote from your book. Is it, do I pronounce it, my abuela? Is that how you say mm-hmm. it? Yeah, my, my grandmother, yep. Yeah, so you say, my abuela held a strong belief that motherhood and wifedom were wonderful and the epitomes of a woman's existence. There was no space for an alternative or less than marvellous experience. And I never questioned that. In good magical realism fashion, I imagine my grandmother watching me struggling to enjoy the blessing of being a mother. I felt ashamed. 
In those months of feeling overwhelmed and irritated, I felt like I was disappointing my heritage. Was I the only Latina wondering if motherhood would ever be more enjoyable? So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can speak to that a little more and expand on perhaps the expectations that you had carried with you into motherhood and then how you met with the reality of what was. Yeah, I, I, my, my grandmother had 13 children, two of which were sets of twins. So 11 births, live births. And I made that mean that she liked having kids. I made that mean that she liked being a mother. I made that mean it was easy. She enjoyed it. Now my, my grandmother was, uh, living in poverty. My, my dad's family were agricultural migrant workers and, and were living in places like a boxcar that had no running water. But I didn't see that or remember that at the same time of seeing the family pictures and seeing how the family did kind of move up from their very meager means of life. And so I had kind of picked and chosen or just skimmed the top of what I thought motherhood was because that's, I mean, that's what socialization is. We kind of pick and choose or we're not even really consciously choosing. It's kind of what sticks and what we remember and it's not really well organized. So with Corazon, with my first daughter, I was just feeling like I was, because it was easy, I was like, oh, well, I'm made for this. So like, I'm half, I'm half Mexican and my grandmother had lots of kids. Like, of course I can two weeks, not even two weeks, a couple of days after Corazon's born, I'm still doing the laundry. I'm still cooking the food. I'm still kind of keeping up with everything like nothing happened. Like the, the trope of, you know, women would just go and have the baby in the field and then go back to work. Like I cringe thinking of that and that that is what all we have somehow expected women to this bounce back culture is criminal, is really just hurtful to women and to children and really to our society. So when I had the two kids, I really started to compare myself to my aunts who had you know, two, three or four children. Again, very on the surface skimming. Well, they were eager to have all those children. They, those were all planned pregnancies. Those were all kind of all these assumptions that I was making. I also um, worked with predominantly Spanish speaking families. And when I would do my work as a pediatric home visitor to support the families with children who had language delays and working with these Spanish speaking families, the mothers greeted me with happy smiles and were happy throughout my home visit. And I erroneously assumed that that's how they were all the time. I also was completely unaware of in the moment of my position as a representative of the state, actually being in the private sphere of their home and that level of surveillance that I was conducting inherently by my job. So kind of linking it to what I then learned in in motherhood studies, like understanding and really the, the panopticon just struck me so huge personally for how I had internalized all the shame and was definitely my own worst Jill guard, but also then what my profession does in the society, in, in the world um, as well. So yeah, it was, it was when I couldn't kind of keep it up or when I couldn't be happy, I had really made a small, there was only an option of like, you're happy or you're not. And there wasn't a lot of, there was no space for ambiguity. 
no idea what that was, no space for the both and, no space for just the humanity of this is hard and uncomfortable and I could still love my kids and still want to be their mother. That had just never been modeled for me, talked about. And so if it's not named, I don't, it doesn't exist. So it didn't even seem like a possibility to me. And if I couldn't do it, then I was failing at it. Yeah. Yeah. What strikes me um, as I listen to you is, you know, the word that's coming up for me is collusion. You know, that there is a collusion between all facets and parts of society, culture, structure that, and family lineage and the way we make meaning from our interpretation of what we see and relationally. And there are all of these ways that actually we're set up, like you were set up to mm-hmm. experience the transition in that way. It, it wasn't something that you necessarily opted in or out of. It's actually those beliefs that you held were formed based on a particular context and a particular experience. And for those listening who aren't aware of the panopticon model, in a really short summation of it is I teach it as the gazing guard tower over maternal power. It's like this idea that you think of a, a cylindrical kind of round, it was a prison, you know, originally by Jeremy Bentham and then Foucault kind of extended on this and talked about it as a model of power. And if you imagine as mothers, we are in this prison. This is our society. And in the center, in the center of it, there is that guard tower and that represents the hegemony of motherhood. That represents uh, the idealization of motherhood and can represent literally people. So as you've just shared, Emily, like you were representative of the state. You were representative of one of those guards actually in the center of the tower, right? And it's symbolic in many ways. Like we can talk about it as literal prison officers or teachers or security guards or midwives, anyone who is in some position of authority, but this is fluid and dynamic and, and changing. And the thing is, is that we become the prison guards, not mm-hmm. only on asserting what is the ideal good mother on other mothers, but ultimately we internalize that guard. And so in this panopticon model, we can throw a huge big sheet over that central tower. We don't even need it there. I mean, it's still there. Yes. But let's just, you know, we can throw the sheet over there. We will still do the work of being policed because we police ourselves. And that's what mum guilt is. And so I'm curious as you are now kind of looking back on your experience and you can see now that you've got these kind of understandings, hindsight, lived experience. Okay. This is what was happening for me at the time. I couldn't necessarily name it, but looking back, this is what was kind of going on for me and all the ways that your, your, your heritage, right, has to do with your sense of identity and sense of self. I suppose for any mother who is listening to this, who may actually be finding herself in those what were for you earlier stages of going, you know what, I'm in a transition, whether it's from going from one child to two or none to one or transitioning out of paid work or into paid work. I'm going through a transition where I feel as though the beliefs I held about myself and the world of what it means to be a mother is kind of being pulled out from under me. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that place and what you would say to kind of that version of yourself with the experience that you now have? I would tell her you are good enough. You can work, you can weather this unfamiliar place and you are capable because you are lovable. I think there was so much battling unworthiness 
battling, really wanting to be a good daughter and a good wife and a good, because I had been such a good girl. I'd gotten all the great grades. I had, I had just been the, I had been the good girl and the good young woman. And when I was at risk of not fitting into the good mother category, and by not fitting in, I mean the fact that I would raise my voice or that I would be irritated at my child or these things that are very human, but in that time seemed unpermissible and would then put me into the bad mother category, that that was okay. There was just, there's more, there's more space to be. I think if anything, like I could take up space. I could have, I could change my mind. Um, I, I might've wanted to do some sort of, I don't know, I, I could change, yeah, I could just change my mind. I think that would be something that I would tell her that you can, you can also take time for yourself and think about what do you really want? What are you needing right now? And just having there to be maybe quiet, actual quiet or taking some physical space from your roles and identities to be able to hear your heart. Like what, what, what does your, what is your soul telling you? What is your heart telling you that you want? And it may not be a clear word. It may not be clear at all, but just, it may be that you're just wanting to move and sway or go for a walk or skip around or just, I think getting in touch with ourselves as women, as people is also something that's been socialized out of us. And that that is how our power is taken away. Mm-hmm. And so I think through any big transition to, I mean, now, now they're not as scary. They might be a little disorienting, but I take it as a place to be curious. And so I would tell, I would tell myself the, the past self. And I was, I was curious when it was happening, actually, uh, which is why I started writing. Because I was like, I was a journalist documenting, why did my brain feel so weird? Why did my headspace feel so weird? What was the antecedent? I mean, like my scientist came online of what is going on here? And I really needed to write it down to have it like it was like proof of life. It was proof that it happened because so much was of it was in my head that if you had looked at me from the outside, you would have think Emily's fine which I think a lot of people close to me thought that. And so they were really surprised when I was asking for help or when I was a puddle of tears and calling my parents when I was home alone with the kids because my husband was out of town. And and yet those were the moments that I got the most clarity kind of muddling through it was when I wrote things down. Mm, There's so much wisdom there. Thank you for sharing that. And, And part of what I'm hearing there is, well, first off, that you are not alone, that mm-hmm. these experiences feel so isolating because they're designed to feel isolating because that's how the socialization of motherhood operates. That's how patriarchal motherhood, one of the ways in which it continues, because if we convince ourselves that we're the problem, it means yeah. it's us and therefore it's our responsibility to fix it. And therefore that means we're actually not good enough. We're not cut out for this and we need to try harder, do more. And then we end up in a place of perpetual burnout, resentment, guilt, and all the rest. There's but, some real dark places that we would just remove ourselves. Yeah. 
yeah. and consider that possibility too. Yeah, I hear you. And I mean, you know, if anyone wanting to dive more into this, buy Emily's book and, and read it because you will hear all of this in much greater depth of of the experiences that you shared so generously. And as I read it, you know, I felt this sense of something I wrote in a review of the book was I said in sharing her postpartum journey, Emily peels back the veil on the transition to motherhood within our society in a way that encapsulates both the grief and the love, the vulnerability and the power, the breaking down and the breaking through that is in the becoming of a mother. And something you've touched on there, which I think can be a lens to of opening after we have that recognition that we're not alone. It's not us in isolation. It's not because we're not good enough. This is actually bigger than us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when things feel bigger than us, it then feels all encompassing. And it's like, well, where can I go? I've been socialized <laughs> and now I'm trapped in this tank. And so I think that place of curiosity that you then kind of move to can be so powerful because curiosity then opens that path for self-knowing of, of questioning as you have modeled for us of what do I actually need? What do I want? What do I think? What can this look like? And it's the pulling down of that mask of motherhood to go, well, what is actually here? Um, and something you said in your book on this theme of curiosity, right? You, you went to the literature and you were researching and you were looking for information to try and help you make sense of your experience. In talking about reading through some of the literature, um, you said, I kept reading and learned that women who put others' needs before themselves, that wasn't that synonymous with motherhood, in the name of dutiful motherhood, experienced guilt and poor mental health. By trying to keep up an A-plus in motherhood, now as a mother of two, plus my high-achieving background, plus cultural beliefs that had me believe that asking for help was a weakness, left me weary, irritable, and believing I was a shit mum. Mm-hmm. So can you speak to that place of of knowing you're not alone, of the opening, of the curiosity, of the recognising that, hey, I have been trying to keep an A-plus in motherhood. (laughs) How do you then move from that place into a place where you are now, by the sounds of it, of having much greater compassion and gentleness on yourself and, and feeling like you've stepped into your power as a motherhood? Can you talk to what that what that looked like in your journey? might be kind of disorganized as I recall it, but there were elements of, you know, when I did that checking in of literally putting a hand on my chest and a hand on my abdomen of what did I need and doing body scanning and taking any sensation as a communication, kind of really trying to read my own (laughs) nonverbals of what did I need was my irritability telling me, oh, I didn't get enough to eat or it's been a while, maybe I'm thirsty, or so really kind of going back to basics, was I getting my needs met in a real just essential way? And then that I really had to go and kind of go to battle with that inner critic, with that voice that was saying that I was a shit mom, that like, how could you do that? How could you, you know, I, there was an instance of where I, I I got really activated and just threw the diaper bag and had this real guttural growl at my parents' house, sent my baby into us, you know, crying because I scared her. And my parents are like, what just happened? Because here I'm demonstrating an emotion of irritability and just a flare of rage that they had never seen me do. 
I had hardly ever, you know, maybe been like the fifth time in my life that spiked like that. But the first time in their house, the first time outside of my house, outside that private sphere, that private place where I had, you know, kind of been resigned to the fact like, oh, this is possible. I can I can do that. But I had never done it in my natal home. And just then the volume of critique of, oh, my gosh, now you've done it. What a horrible mother you are. Just the ear, literal earful that I was getting and trying to navigate this immense dysregulation. So I really had to kind of shut up that voice because it would just creep in all the time. It seemed like it was just this shadow, this like gum on your shoe that would not let me go. And so I really used a technique called gestalt. I would literally think it was somebody outside of me and I would audibly speak to it and say, stop. Or I would, you know, say, you know, restate what it said in my mind. And these aren't hallucinations. I'm just saying this is just, you know, we we think these, we you know have this, but I would just say, you know, no, I'm not. I actually, I, I, that's not true. It's not true what you just said or what I just heard of, of not, I'm not a good mother, or it's even just like, shut up, stop, go away. And it was kind of in, in asserting that agency of my mind that I finally got, would get some clarity to be able to have some perspective and then realize, okay, at first the voice was in the guise of my mother. Her, her, her voice is who I heard in my head, in my mind. And then I realized, oh my gosh, those are my judgments of myself. And they're also kind of like seeped in from society's judgments of me. So really they are my internalization of my socialization. So it was this progression of first, oh my gosh, mom's voice is really not mom. <laughs> she doesn't actually think because there was a point and I shared the book where I tell her what I think I'm hearing her say. She's like, had the complete opposite response, which was shocking. And I'm like, wait, wait, that was kind of the first clue that no mom's mom's voice is not actually in my mind. So it was these kind of this progression of really, and I think the biggest one was really getting clarity and getting agency from that inner critic. Because then that gave space for me to notice a younger self, my younger selves that had begun to show up in my mothering with my single child and unmet needs there and kind of old wounding that was, you know, here she had a playmate that she always wanted to have. And did she want to go to bed when it was bedtime? Absolutely not. Like, so my daughter could convince me to keep going for another 20 minutes. And then we would be 20 minutes, you know, past bedtime. What good mother lets that happen? And so then I would have to like overcorrect. And so that kind of wrangling within myself of different needs including my need to still be a somewhat good mother in that guise of good was something to, to, to grapple with. And so as I got more agency from my inner critic, I could start. And then I also kind of got acquainted with my, with my inner child. It was like these nesting dolls kind of finding, finding down to what was, who was I and who did I want to be as a mother? And I think the intersection, you know, that took some time that took, I would say a couple of years to really, live into it. And then when there are moments when I would kind of not have the capacity, really, really worn down, not be resourced, you know, I would get agitated and irritable again. And it would, it was kind of, you know, 
it made us nervous. Like, oh gosh, we're going, we're going, we're sliding backwards. Like we haven't made any growth and progress when really we had, and we all just needed to, to rest. Having kids and a job and life is really a lot. Um, so what were our expectations for ourselves and adjusting those expectations? But it was also getting more education, really doing the motherhood studies course was really pivotal in accelerating my integration and a digestion of what had happened and to really, I think likely it's part of my kind of intellectual inclination and the way I think about things. But I had done a lot of top down in the sense of made these changes without, as I felt led to and needed to in response to what was happening, but then kind of getting a bottom up education of society, the institution of motherhood, that that really made everything more stable. Hmm. Having those underpinning theories and concepts in my mind, but then also I could start to put them into my body and into practice in my mothering made, you know, this new house that I was building, my new kind of my new self that I'd completely, de- you know, I deconstructed, I'd salvaged some things, but I needed that really strong foundation to build this new structure, to have it last with the opportunity for remodeling and readjusting that comes with more flexible thinking about motherhood and, you know, and knowing that the hegemony, knowing that the society is there, but it didn't need to be living in Side my house and really seeing that private sphere as a place of real freedom and almost revolution to what was outside the front door. And that was huge. And also really embracing intersectionality in its presentation of how am I at work? How am I a mother? How do I blend the two, especially when I work with children and families and kind of being able to let those bleed together and be this this new thing of a professional and a mother and it just it it took it took some real kind of overriding and kind of real behavioral changes on my part to try to do things differently but it also took education to cultivate some real lasting resiliency to make changes and that it's ongoing, you know, continuing to review and, and be engaged with motherhood studies concepts helps me continue to see where I can put down masks that I still may hold in certain situations. My youngest is now in kindergarten and has been since September. And so even navigating the new school life of both my children are in school, I'm catching myself like, what are our motives for wanting to, you know, am I trying to, is that because I, is that a good mom motivation, quote unquote, good mom motivation? Or is that a genuine inclination that I want to do that? To what degree is, is my socialization in this new age range now what needs to be looked at and examined and deconstructed? So I think I, I anticipate that it will be an ongoing thing, as I believe postpartum is, to continue to reevaluate every every year, every phase of our children, every phase of ourselves, how we come and you know again those intersections of of how we we meet society and and how we've been raised or how we're not necessarily it's not necessarily being raised, but it's just it's the bigger it's the socialization how we've all been socialized because. Even individuals who don't have children, they're socialized in how to behave towards women and children or mothers and families. And 
that that also needs to shift and that also needs to have education because those bystanders are also participating unknowingly until they know that they are in in that panopticon too so i hope that answered your question it's absolutely yeah there was so much in there that i want to pull apart and i just have to say that you've just given a such a brilliant example of what detoxing from our socialization into patriarchal motherhood looks like like that that is what it is it starts with education it then it it has to involve some sense of self-connection and and this is why often it is extremely hard to do this work in isolation when it's just you on your own needing to connect in with professional support with community with others who get it and and I know that that's been part of your journey as well Emily being able to actually sit in conversation with others who are going through the same thing who understand who speak the language that is not part of our cultural language yet it's not right. and so I think that what you've shared there in terms of the the unlayering, right, and the, the building up of a new version of your motherhood also speaks to why I don't teach alternative models of motherhood. So when we say we've got the fish tank of motherhood and here's what patriarchal motherhood is and here's what we need to change and we can talk about liberated practices of mothering. We can talk about the name of this podcast, Good Enough Mothering. That's a practice of mothering. We can talk about the different ways that we can create, but actually we can't hold up another pedestal for which to strive because we'll end up in the same position, right? Right, right. No, and that's, and that is uh, what's so tempting having been socialized in a hegemony is just kind of replace it with something less intense. And I think that's then where getting really comfortable with ambiguity is a key practice. Getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, that it may not be all tidy and and feel good to navigate kind of an ever-changing landscape within yourself, within your kids, within your family, within literally the physical season that you're living in. And yet writing those currents is what it takes. Writing your own nervous system changes and getting familiar with those things was also critical to that orientation to self. Yeah. And this is why mothering is a revolutionary act because that's part of how you create change. And, and I think the thread of what I also hear in all of that is just a lot of self compassion and self permission and to be with what is and allow yourself to allow yourself to fail, to fall down, to struggle, to crumble. Like a, the crumbling is actually at some phases of our particular transitions, like the crumbling has to happen in order for us to rebuild. And you've, I mean, I've been through similar thing recently, you know, with this year of my daughter starting school. And it's like, actually, I want to, in some ways I want to resist that because I don't want to feel into all of the hard because I can try and keep it together and I know how to play the role. But then I have to actually allow myself to feel the undoing in order to be in a process of recreation. And that does happen. It's cyclical. Like it happens over and over. And I wonder, to kind of move towards the end of our conversation, if you could reflect on, particularly after writing your book, which is a creative process and I imagine a cathartic process, I wonder if you can speak to where you are now in your mothering, in your life, in your work, with a vision and a hope perhaps for those who are listening who may not 
be in a space of re-emergence, who may be in that messiness and the the challenge of the transition, what what is possible on the other side of that? What what has been possible for you as a mother, as someone who exists in the world now? I guess first I want to say for those that are in the messiness, befriending the messiness is is befriending yourself. And that it and it is okay to have messiness in yourself and in your physical space. That was so hard for me at first. So even kind of my tolerance of physical messiness, I made that mean that I was messy and not good and things like that. So even in these small moments where you can just try to make shifts and make peace with, I it's it's still okay. I'm I'm still good. I think was something that I was a tether that I clung to. I have really been surprised how closely I still want to be with the, well, I, one, I, I was just thrilled to find motherhood studies as someone who had self-identified as a feminist, wasn't really educated on feminism, actually, you know, full disclosure, and to get to do that and yet now have this orientation of matricentric feminism has it really all make sense about how, like you said, how revolutionary it is to really make change. Mothers are the change makers. Caregivers are the change makers. And as someone who professionally works with future custodians of caregivers as a pediatric speech pathologist and a clinical professor, I am thrilled with the integrity in my satisfying my intellectual and personal needs that it goes so well with my professional hat and my professional responsibilities and to be able to infuse this very critical knowledge into again a profession that participates in the society as people who engage in surveillance documented surveillance developmental surveillance and how to have more flexibility in how that can be, how that power can be wielded, that it can be a conscious thing and that there can be specific actions that my students can take to deconstruct that, those power differentials, to empower mothers, to really look at, there's such a tendency to have it be all about the child. Even as I now am studying infant toddler mental health, I am so proud to be able to broaden the lens to the caregiver and help shift what has been so narrowly focused on the this adorable little baby. And yes, that is true. However, just staying there perpetuates the hegemony that the mother is secondary and not essential. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's in that field is kind of so intentional, but it's it's what happens unless you're really holding open a wider view to history. How have mothers been seen historically? How are they being seen now? How are they seen if you're partnered or not, or if you're a mother of color or not? So I think just there's so much there's so much work to do in changing the bigger system that now I see it as what I need to to be working, how I need to be working in the world because I, I can't, I can't unsee what I see now. And for my own personal ethics, I, to walk away from it would be just wrong. Yeah, no, thank you for, thank you for sharing that, Emily. I think that, you know, you've, you have so much wisdom to offer 
from your lived experience as both a mother, as a practitioner, as somebody who's curious about learning more in this space. And I love the way that you demonstrate and model an integration and an intersection of the different hats that you wear, right, in this place of coming back to self and anchoring into yourself, who you are, and then moving from that place and seeing your mother in as well as what you do professionally as a side of, of activism and change and and part of what is a journey that we don't know the the end point of, right? There isn't one of. It's all just moving flexibly and practicing resilience in it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised that I, because um, as someone who, as a young teenager, I wasn't into caregiving and babysitting. I wasn't even sure I wanted to have children or work with pediatric with the pediatric population uh, when I started my professional training. So the fact that it's really comes so full circle and that I'm still staying here. I'm, I just, I'm, I'm excited to, to blend, to blend motherhood studies, to blend infant toddler mental health, to blend pediatric speech language pathology, because I feel like they're so interwoven and they all need each other to differing degrees. And I think the more diversity in thinking and perspectives that can be held is really how we can make a bigger change to services for children, to policies for children and families, we have to have more different vantage points to see it from. And I am excited to see what that can look like. Yeah, all of the the little ripples of change, right, that are happening throughout Mm -hmm. the globe. And so I really appreciate everything that you've done and your engagement and the way that you've shared so openly and the the gifts that you've offered to the world through your book, Unexpected, a postpartum memoir. So I'd encourage everyone who is listening to go and buy a copy. There'll be details in the show notes of how to do so. And Emily, I wonder if we could finish with you just sharing how people can connect with you and, and learn more about the work that you put out into the world. Yeah, you can. I've got a, a new uh, updated website. So emilyadlermoskela.com has information about myself and my journey and my book, but also resources for mothers in the United States who are experiencing kind of need some crisis supports, also some lovely podcasts that I've been on and others, um, including Sophie's um, in the past, but also on social media on Instagram, emily.adler.moskeda and um, at postpartum365. That's where I've really kind of talking about Postpartum is, is kind of forever is, is, is every year is a new version of it. And also where I tried to drop little kernels of, of ideas to reconsider and kind of help even within the motherhood caring sphere to orient it more towards matricentric feminism and talking about centering the mother and, and things of that sort and sharing, sharing some research that I find or things that I've learned with Sophie and others um, in this space. So it's, that's kind of the platform that I'm using and been creating to to share. Hopefully that more people from all different disciplines, um, maybe also beyond mothers, can access that information too. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, Emily. Thanks for having me, Sophie. I hope you've resonated with something from today's episode. Please consider leaving the podcast a review to help me have these conversations reach more people. If you're someone who works with mothers, check out my online training, the Motherhood Studies Practitioner Certification, and you can head to my website for more information about my other services, drsophiebrock.com. Thank you for being here.